0: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voysin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I always thank my listeners because without all of you out there from around the world who tune into this show um, through SoundCloud and at my website, uh, there just actually would be no reason for me doing it. I love hearing from you. I love your thoughts and your ideas. Uh, Today, I have a returning author. I've interviewed Donald Altman before uh, for the One Minute Mindfulness book, but he's got a new book out called Clearing Emotional Clutter, Mindfulness Practices for Letting Go of What's Blocking Your Fulfillment and Transformation. Good day to you, Donald.
1: Oh, hi, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Well, it's a pleasure having you on, and this is a great way through podcasts for people to get out information about their new books. And this is really, really a very good book, and it, it, and I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you before we get started. Um, okay, Donald has an MA and an LPC. He's a psychotherapist, a former Buddhist monk and an award-winning author of several books, including The One Minute Mindfulness, The Mindfulness Toolbox, and The Mindfulness Code. He connects mindful living and mindful eating workshops and retreats, and trains mental health therapists and business people to use mindfulness as a tool for optimizing health and fulfillment. And uh, we were just talking, he lives just a little bit outside of Portland, Oregon. He's enjoying a beautiful day there today. You can learn more about him at his website, and that's www.mindfulpractices.com, and I'll repeat it, www.mindfulpractices.com. And By the way, this is a new World Library book, and you can get this on Amazon and all your best booksellers, a great little book, and so we're going to get into it. Now, Donald, you open the book up and you state that it's no surprise that emotional clutter from our past can stick to us like super glue. You say to such an, ex- such an extent that we often consider it inseparable from our sense of self and personal identity. I think that's a, it's a great quote. What do you consider emotional clutter is and what are mm. some of the ways that you're recommending that people purge themselves from the attachment to emotional clutter?
1: Yeah, well, that's should- a... It is a, a, a great question because I think clutter can stick to us in so many ways, emotional clutter, in ways, uh, Greg, that we're not even aware that it's there. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Uh, so it could be uh, emotional clutter from your childhood, something traumatic that happened to you back then. It could be uh, something, uh, emotional clutter from our family, right? And our family right. have a way of that we we perceive the world or that we... We see, view things. Uh, could be clutter from uh, just the daily wear and tear of the stress, the things that you're going through every day, feelings of overwhelm that make it hard for you to to uh, uh, have a sense of clarity and optimism about what you're doing, connecting mm-hmm. with purpose. You know, it just these are. It could be anxious thoughts that fill your mind, worries about things that might happen or never happen. And and all those anxious thoughts, you know, imagine the show, think about the show uh, Hoarders, if you've ever seen that and how uh, all that physical clutter can block you from seeing, really seeing the space that you're in. And this mental clutter is very much the same. We can't see it, but it blocks us from being here in the present moment. And it can have a lot of negative consequences in our life and in in our relationships.
0: Most definitely. And I think Because people can't see it, as you said, they feel it. Uh, They feel anxious. They feel, uh, you know, they get angry. They get upset. And I know even having physical clutter around you can do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So the emotional clutter just compounds that effect. And you mentioned that awakening is our ticket off this elevator, up and down, from an emotional standpoint. Um, again, the anger, the frustration, all those emotions that comes that come out as a result of having this mental clutter. Right. How do you help people to create awareness to the extent that it is embedded into their consciousness. And what I mean embedded, I mean embedded awareness that this is what they're doing to themselves, that, that they themselves are the only ones that have control of it. It's not outside of them.
1: Right. Well, and, and, and that's the place where we'd want to start is to help people start to recognize the clutter. And I, I have a, a tool, I have a chapter in the book called Inner Facebooking. And I have a number of different meditations throughout the book, and I have lifestyle tools in there. But the inner Facebooking chapter is based on the idea that, um, you know, uh, if you go to Facebook, you see all the different posts that people are putting up about things that are happening in their lives. And you know how when you watch, uh, you're looking at Facebook or any social media, how it can affect you. Well, in the same way, uh, we're putting up mental inner Facebook posts all the time kind of a second Facebook. I call it the inner Facebook. And those posts that you're putting up, if those posts are unflattering, if you're making, uh, you know, a lot of critical posts about yourself and your life, different belief systems that maybe are limiting for you, then um, that uh, inner Facebook post, or I call it an, an inner selfie, as another way of thinking about it. Right. Um we need to become more aware of those. I want people to actually start noticing what their interface booking is all about and how is it changing your experience of reality? How maybe is it limiting limiting to you? How is it affecting your relationships? How is it making you feel? And so if it's filling you up with a lot of old junk, a lot of negative feelings, then uh, what we want to start having someone do is to start also looking at what are some what are some more accurate, maybe positive Facebook posts that you could create for yourself? And this is so this is just starting to look at, you know, what is all the clutter and how is it affecting me? And so, um, well, just even that in of
0: itself, I think, you know, again, this is nothing against Facebook. There's billions of people on it. Oh,
1: right. Right.
0: But, yeah. but it, it it just the whole concept is more clutter. It's more of everything, you know, and it's learning how to be very mindful of what you do post and why you post uh, versus just posting. I heard someone at a Ted talk say, you know, we spend our life with these cell phone devices taking pictures, but we frequently miss the moment because we're so, we're so (laughs) engrossed in wanting to get a picture of where we are. So, you know, you lately, a lot of people have fallen off cliffs uh, taking selfies and they've done, you know, and so it's just, it's just a part of society today. And uh, that leads me to your chapter on peace of acceptance. You know, you mentioned that non-acceptance, it's like living an illusionary. Um, what if world of make-believe, uh, that's how you really frame it. What in your estimation can we learn to forgive ourselves and others whom we may have hurt or they've hurt our feelings?
1: Hmm. Well, that's a profound question. And uh, one thing that I think could be helpful is for us to uh, recognize that uh, everybody's got flaws. Everybody... Uh, uh, nobody's perfect. even that person who you might admire, uh, even that spiritual being, uh, whether it's a Buddha or whoever, uh, you know if you're going to stand in the light, you're also going to cast a shadow. And so we need to uh, understand that. And we could uh, especially be self-accepting of, of uh, ourselves of uh, those times we may have hurt another or somebody hurt us, and we can recognize that, uh, you know, this person may be suffering, that they're struggling in their own way. And that could bring us into an area of compassion and acceptance. And it's, um, you know, if you're fighting against what's happening in your life, you're adding a, like almost a second kind of suffering that you're resisting and you're pushing against something that's there. And uh, acceptance is a very, you know, you can't always control what's going to happen in your life, but you can decide how you'd like to respond and to respond in a skillful way. Even a poker player, they can't uh, you could have a bad hand, but it's how you play it. And that's where acceptance comes in. It's a very powerful way of of changing your relationship to this moment, even to the hard things, the things that maybe you, you wish you didn't have to face. It could be a health problem, it might be a, a loss of a relationship or whatever. And and, uh, I believe that coming into a place of acceptance and self-acceptance and self-compassion can help us get through those and grow and learn and become even stronger.
0: Yeah, it's really important to know that one of our main purposes for this incarnation is loving and learning. And um, I don't know if there's really anything more for us to do. Um, than to learn how to love and forgive and Mm. to be compassionate and to learn from our life lessons versus resist those lessons, right? So, you know, you were teaching a mindfulness course and you write about this in a chapter on the day that Sandy Hook occurred. Um, And this event certainly affected everyone very profoundly that was in that session um, that you had. And obviously worldwide, the ripples of Sandy Hook were felt everywhere. You had an exercise planned called three questions. And I, I found those questions very Um, insightful can you tell us about the significance of it and um, how this helped the individuals compassionately communicate love and heal
1: yeah the three questions is a wonderful story actually was written by Tolstoy in the in the 1880s and it's a story of somebody wants to know the answers to the three questions of uh, what's the most important time who are the most important people And what's the most important thing to do at all times? And uh, from the the king that has to, who wants the answers to these stories, he goes to find a wise man, and he ends up learning through experience, not from this guy telling him, but from experience that the most important time is now. It's the only time over which we don't have any other time we don't have any dominion over, but now, the present moment is the only time over which we can make choices and have some kind of effect in the present moment. Uh, The most important person is the one who is right before you, the one who is at your side right now. That's the only person with whom you can really be present. Who knows if you're going to be with any other person in the future? And the third question, the most important thing to do at all time that uh, is in this particular story is to to be of assistance, is to help the one who's before you uh, and make them happy. Now, we may not be able to make the person before us in front of us happy, but we could give them our compassionate presence. We could be open and compassionate to them. That's within our in our power. You know, I had to share that story, uh, and I used this story as an example in workshops around the, uh, the country and internationally. And uh, I had to do the story on the day of the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, and uh, I really... Almost, decide, almost wasn't going to do this exercise where I have people um, sit with each other in silence for just three minutes in this compassionate, present way. But I decided to go ahead and share the three question story. And it was very, I mean, I was choked up and everybody was, but it really pointed out the truth that, you know, nobody really owns or purchases the future, do we? Uh, we really. Uh, the one who is before us, is the most unique person in the universe. If you were even to look in somebody's eyes and be able to observe their... The brain has 100 billion neurons, and each neuron has between 1,000 to 50,000 connections to other neurons. That's more connections than all the known stars in the universe. And uh, it just minds... I can't really wrap my mind around that, Greg. It's just staggering, but it does point out how... Each of us is the most unique person in the universe, and that can give us another perspective on being with another person, and uh, even that now, person uh, who's a stranger before us—that person at the checkout counter or the person who's, you know, uh, helping us uh, serving the food in the restaurant. Each person is is really helping, is a part of connected whole
0: yeah and it it's so important to realize that uh, this is this incarnation the learnings we're making by the interaction with those people which brings me to how we interact and you have a great chapter on the love of listening and how does in your estimation learning how to listen better and speak less help us understand not only the other person But ourselves, and I understand this is also helps us clear our own emotional clutter. And you give four directions in the book for all my listeners out there. It's on page 100. If you have the book, when you get the book, tell us a little bit about that. Because look, most of us, I spend my life speaking to people uh, in one way or another. And listening is something that I've been working on very, very difficult, you know, for a long time. Now, when when you respond to a question I ask, I'm definitely listening because I'm listening for content. I'm listening for what you're saying. I'm listening for the depth. But I think to listen for compassion is a completely different kind of listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I maybe... I would like your 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 audience before I tell you these four things is to consider: does do any of you have a difficult person in your life? <laughs> I'd be surprised if if somebody. Everybody didn't.
0: does. Everybody <laughs> does. does, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And so, <laughs> how uh, you know is it possible to uh, engage even with that difficult person in a new way, in a fresh way? And um, so, I think that. Uh, It is possible. And so here are some ways to listen in a new way. And and I want you to think also that think of a cup filled with tea. If it's filled all the way to the brim, you can't put any more tea in there, can you? And in the same way, if our own cup is filled up with our assumptions about another person, with uh, our own opinions and beliefs are so strong it fills our cup up, uh, we can't really listen to another person and absorb what they're saying. We need to kind of empty our cup first to make that possible. And so here are some ways to do that, to empty our cups so we could be open to listening. The first thing is to drop our assumptions about that person. Even for this one little conversation, could I set my assumptions aside, even if I uh, feel I don't agree with somebody? See what it's like just to set those assumptions aside for a little bit. You can always come back to them later. Uh, The second thing here is to not just listen to the content of what somebody's saying, but to listen to the emotion. what's underneath the words. Listen to the emotional subtext. Pay attention to the tone of the voice, the body language, the gestures, the facial expressions of this person. Um, I had uh, somebody I worked with who felt their mother was very uh, self-critical. No matter what they did with their children, if they were uh, helping their 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 kids, then the mother would say, "Oh, you know, you're a helicopter mom." If they were uh, giving their kids a little more freedom, then the mother would say, "Oh, you know, you know, you're 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 not as involved as you should be." And this woman felt that that she couldn't win, and so I asked her to to uh, tune in to what was happening under the surface and not to just react to the words. And when she came back to me, she said, "You know, I I discovered something. My mother is lonely." I could hear her lonely she 's trying to connect with me, and she doesn 't know how that 's what can happen when we allow ourselves to shift uh, into this other mode of listening. The third step is to get curious about the person you 're communicating with. Curiosity is a wonderful way to uh, to let go of your uh, your point of view and become more objective and and uh, interested in what the other person has to say and so you could ask some questions you could ask. Oh, clarify that. I'm trying to understand that. So even if this difficult person has a viewpoint very different from yours, or they just, uh, you know, um, you could try to understand them mm-hmm. and try to understand how they're feeling. And the last thing, the last step is to notice uh, if your thoughts about this person are, are accurate or just automatic. And then you can try to step off automatic mode and answer and be more present with them. And this can really help build relationships and build understanding. It's really important that we start to learn to listen. We're, yeah, there are a lot of talk shows out there, but are there are there any listening shows out there? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no,
0: no, probably won't ever be either, uh, only because of just, I think, kind of the state of consciousness of, of kind of a global consciousness. Um, I think people are used to being talked to and at. They do want to be included, Uh, And they want to be heard, and that's what social media is doing. It's the voice of the world, you know, how they're interacting. Which leads me to this this next question. I love this chapter. This is uh, your chapter on change the distraction channel to find clarity. And my question for you is this. Why in your estimation do you believe that our society has gravitated to being an always-on mode to the extent of addiction with electronic devices, and what is this doing to us in the society? What remedies do you have for our listeners who are finding themselves completely distracted, addicted, and mm. can't, you know, <laughs> uh, can't, <laughs> yeah. can't put them down? I mean, um, it's, it just seems to be one of those phenomena that's occurring. That you, you just see it everywhere. And it, it is a bit uh, concerning to me.
1: Yeah, you know there's um there's actually some very interesting history it goes back to 1911 or over 100 years ago. There was a, a guy named um uh uh William uh Fielding, I believe his name was, and he uh wrote a book called uh, Scientific Time Management and it was about how to bring the watch into the how to bring the stopwatch into the workplace and make people more efficient. And there were riots at the time. People did not want to be Uh, turned into machines and yet his ideas ended up winning winning out right and so now he's kind of revered in business mba texts and so on and uh, we're becoming more mechanized more mechanical and thinking that we can always do more 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 and we're trying to like cram two or three lifetimes into one and we're constantly uh yeah and i think that media uh, and it has a lot of benefits i'm not saying that it doesn't but it can uh change the brain it can make us actually uh more distractible
0: well it actually so, they've proven it can make us dumber
1: mm, well
0: <laughs> and and the reason it yeah. is because we're dependent on not thinking for ourselves but mm. really being attached to these devices to almost think for us um mm, you know yeah. and so there's been a lot of studies on this but yeah just just the whole aspect of the distraction is not mindfulness. You teach mindfulness. Right. If you were right. to teach mindfulness around what I call, you know, I've coined this phrase, downhead syndrome. And and I believe that we live in a society with downhead syndrome people. And what I mean by that is they're always looking at their device. They oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's
1: okay. interesting. That's a great term.
0: So they don't <laughs> look up. What would you get people to just look up, pay attention, understand their surroundings? Yeah. And communicate with one another. You know, you see families sitting at, you know, restaurants and the kids are on their iPads and their phones and and it's like, man, are you guys talking? Are you communicating?
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So my question is, what would you as a mindfulness instructor and an ex-Buddhist monk and people who are in contemplative study, what is it that you would say that would. Get them to understand the Zen of just being here now.
1: Yeah. Well, what I like to work with people on is to have what I call uh, faithfulness to this moment, fidelity to the moment, to uh, be be present with whatever it is you're doing, with committing yourself 100% to it. If you're sitting in a chair, and maybe some of your audiences right now, just be 100% committed to that experience of sitting, noticing how your body's making contact with the chair, feeling the bottom of your feet flat on the ground, noticing your posture, having fidelity to the breath. And we take 18 to 20,000 breaths in the course of a day. And, uh, and you'd be present with just a handful of those with this breath, this in-breath, the pause, the exhale. And I think that if we can do that, uh, it can uh, help us overcome that state of distractibility And with that state of distractibility also is, uh, it kind of cultivates this fear of looking within fear of looking and reflecting inwardly. And then looking at our values, looking at our, how can we can align with our deeper purpose and so on. And, uh, and that's one of the great gifts we have—is this ability to look inward. That's part of the what I call the mindfulness module of the brain. It's right behind the eyebrow ridge, and and it's what differentiates us from other uh, creatures, other animals, is we have the ability to uh, look inward and reflect and improve our lives and to learn, and as you said, to uh, focus on love, and 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 so if we're if we're stuck in with a a down head syndrome, I love that by the way, uh, that's, that's going to be impeding us from reaching that, that greater purpose.
0: Well, and I love the fact that you're mentioning that, you know, to be aware first and to take a breath. And I think if people would just you know, be more aware of their surroundings. People get on automatic pilot. You know, yeah. we've always heard this. You drove to the office and say, do you remember driving to the office? No, I don't remember anything because <laughs> I was too busy. <laughs> I was too busy texting. I was too busy talking on the phone. I was too busy. And we're all part of that culture today. And I think, it, you know, I'm just mentioning even for me, because what you, 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 experience yourself as as much what you need to learn yourself, right? So mm-hmm. I I bring it back to even me. Slow down, be aware, yeah. notice, take a breath, and take in the virtue of what is happening uh, to you in that moment. And that brings me to this next question and my last question. You know, you have a great quote you borrowed from Eckhart Tolle on the chapter on nature's cleansing power of hope. Mm. And I want to read that quote because I think it's sure. it's pretty powerful. Negativity is totally unnatural. It is a psychic pollutant, and there is a deep link between the poisoning and destruction of nature and the vast negativity that has accumulated in the collective human psyche. I. That's, you know, profound to me because what it's saying is, you know, here we are polluting our brains and polluting the world. Um, You have a couple of meditations you recommend in this chapter to connect with nature. Uh, I'd like for you, one of them was about the stargazing, but can you explain to our listeners those two meditations and what you would believe the benefits would be to connecting back with nature?
1: Well, nature uh, is an amazing source of wisdom for us, and it um, and the, the sky gazing meditation that I have is a way of, especially in time difficult times, a way of casting out and just surrendering all your worries to something bigger, to the divine, to the to nature, to whatever you would like to call it, and um allowing you to enter a new space yourself to um uh let nature speak to you. I, you know I I'm always reminded of the words of uh, of uh, George Washington Carver now maybe you some of you uh, audiences have heard of him. He was like the Thomas Edison of the peanut and he had discovered hundreds of uses for the peanut and somebody once asked him, "How do you he said, you must be a really great scientist because you've been able to find all these uh, in- inventions for the peanut. And he said, well, he said I don't know about that. He said, I go out at-, at four in the morning, and he says, I go and I sit in silence and commune with the plants. And I found that if you sit with anything and love it enough, it will share with you all of its secrets. Wow. That's incredible. And so I think that just sitting with nature can be a very healing and enlightening experience for us where we just, you know, uh, stop, where where we get a more spacious awareness and we could actually start to see that the mind is not all those thoughts that fill it up all the time. It's one way of looking at what mind does, but that there is a, is a, a, a spacious and openness aspect of mind in that moment when you see nature and you get absorbed in it, that the the observer and the observed. It's almost like you merge, you become one, and there's that moment of great uh, awareness and spaciousness and openness that is wonderful. And and, and in that sense, I mean, I, I've had experiences where I've done this sky meditation at some of the low points of my life, and I share uh, one of those experiences uh, in the book when I was feeling a lot of despair. And uh, when I did this practice, and 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 the experience is something that even went beyond. I I put words to it, and the words I put to it was it's all the blessing because that's the only way I could uh, describe it in terms of words. But it was beyond that, but it helped me to uh, understand that it was that I would get through that difficult time, and it and it bolstered me even at times when I uh, couldn't access that. Same feeling again, I remembered it. I said, you know what, it is all the blessing. you the good, the bad, the challenge, the difficult times, the good times. And uh, nature uh, has incredible healing power. And then give us hope. I think that's the other key. It can take us out of this, the, uh, that, the I, the me, the my, the mind, the egocentric point of view, and allow us to transcend that. And in that transcendence can come a whole new understanding and uh, this is something it's like a revolutionary leap of awareness that can occur in those moments. And I, th- I think it's very important for us to start uh, looking more at nature and and not being so stuck in the video gaming world and in our screens, but to stop and pause and be present with. Uh, the, the the wonder of nature because actually we are part of that world we grew out of it and if we're intelligent then the world must also be intelligent and so I think it's important for us to recognize that
0: well obviously being with nature is a great way not only just communing but if you stop and pause and understand mm-hmm. the perspective of which you sit in nature your uniqueness with this whole planetary massiveness but yet you're
1: you're and how it's all interrelated yeah correct
0: correct and i think that's where people can have some pretty fascinating uh awarenesses about Mm -hmm. their place in the universe uh their role on the other hand it can be overwhelming because i think people at times look at that and they're like well i'm too small i'm too this you know i'm not enough I'd encourage people to turn off the not enough tape and say, you're exactly where you are divinely created in the space where you're supposed to be doing exactly what you're supposed to be. Um, and, and love it. In other words, love yourself, love that moment, love what it is that Mm -hmm. you're doing. Um, we can always think that there's something better that we're supposed to be doing and we're, and then you never get there and you die with that regret. Um, and the reality is you'll come back to live that all over again. At least that's what I believe. So, um, (laughs) at this point, we won't get into that philosophical conversation, but it's been a pleasure having you on inside personal growth for a second time. Uh, we've been speaking today with Donald Altman. Uh, he is the author of many books, but, uh, how many books have you actually authored? I forget.
1: Well, I I, know, I think I have about uh
0: 12 uh 12 or 13
1: okay. uh, self-help books, yeah.
0: Well, we've done two. I'm going to invite you to come back on again, and let's do another oh, round. I love, I, it. I love yeah. interviewing you, and it's it's always very insightful for my listeners. Uh, go to Amazon. The book is called "Clearing Emotional Clutter: Mindfulness Practices for Letting Go of What's Blocking Your Fulfillment and Transformation." You can also uh, see Donald through his own website at www.mindfulnesspractices.com.
1: And he reminded. Me yeah
0: mindfulpractices.com. mindfulpractices.com and there he's got a newsletter that he's encouraging you to sign up for. It's a blog as well and he's got a mindfulness sp- uh, store uh but you know go on and read Donald's blog, get a copy of some of the tips and things that he's telling people on a regular basis and subscribe to his newsletter. Uh Donald again um, peace and blessings to you. Namaste. Thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth. It's always a pleasure having you on the show.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Greg, and blessings to you too for the work that you're doing. Uh, it's wonderful. And I really enjoyed being here with you today, and I hope we could do it again. And blessings also to your audience.